It is John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. Listen now to the word of the Lord. For Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. The Lord, the Lord bless you. you. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. It's good to see you all. Uh, please pray with me. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you once again for this time together. And we ask again uh, that in the hearing of your word, uh, you would reveal yourself to us, strengthen us to love you and to love others more and more. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. So last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday is for many the culmination of the church liturgical calendar. It's the highlight of the year. However, I want to remind you that Easter Sunday is only the beginning of the season of Eastertide, which lasts 50 days until Pentecost Sunday. As you heard last week, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to many people over a period of many days, including to more than 500 brothers at one time, to the 12, and to individuals like Peter, James, and Paul. So for the next six weeks, I'd like for us to linger a while longer with those who encounter Jesus in his resurrection. This morning, we begin with Mary Magdalene. According to all four gospel writers, a group of women were the first to see the empty tomb. And as you heard in the reading, Mary Magdalene was the first person to see and the first to be commissioned with a message by the risen Christ. Unfortunately, like the story of many women throughout history, we actually don't know very much about her. But because of the importance of her testimony in the story of Easter, many legends grew up around her over the centuries. One of the more interesting stories is this. Mary Magdalene is said to have gone to Rome to bear witness to Caesar Tiberius to tell him that she had seen the risen Christ. 
Caesar, of course, laughed after claims about the resurrection and said that no one could rise from the dead any more than an egg lying on the table could turn red. So she supposedly took the egg in her hand and it was supposed to have turned bright red. I don't believe that Caesar was persuaded. However, in some Eastern churches, there is the tradition of painting their Easter eggs red in memory of her. And as these pictures and icons show, Mary Magdalene is often depicted holding a red egg as a symbol of her testimony of the resurrection. It's an interesting legend, but it's just a legend. Here's what we do actually know about Mary Magdalene from the scriptures. We can begin with her name. Mary is a very, very common name. And in the Bible, there are at least, at least a half dozen women named Mary, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the sister of Martha, Mary, the mother of James, another Mary that's identified as the other Mary. And so it can get quite confusing. Fortunately for us, Mary Magdalene is always referred to as Mary Magdalene. Magdalene simply means of Magdala, and it is the name of a small fishing town by the shore of the seas, by the Sea of Galilee. It may not seem like much, but it is significant that she is referred to by the name of a town. Typically, women were identified by their relationship to a man, to that of her father, her husband, or her son. So the designation of Magdala, Magdalene, may imply some prominence and independence that was unusual at the time. When she appears in lists with other women, for example, with one exception, her name always appears first. I can also point out that her name appears a dozen times in the four gospels, which is second only to Mary, the mother of Jesus, among the appearance of women's names. In 11 of the 12 times her name is mentioned, it is to note her presence at the cross or the tomb with the other women. All four gospel writers are very, very clear on this point. Mary was there. She was the first to be there. Now, the one time she is mentioned outside of Jesus' death and resurrection is in Luke chapter 8. This is when Jesus is going around from city to city, from village to village, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. His 12 disciples are with him, and we are told, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. This is an incredible detail that Luke has preserved for us. Mary Magdalene is among the group of women whose ability to financially support Jesus made his itinerant ministry possible. This group of women helped to pay the bills for daily meals, for lodging, for travel. 
And they did this for several years for Jesus and for more than a dozen men in his entourage. It's a tremendous commitment of generosity, of sacrifice and faithfulness on the part of these women. However, the piece of biographical information that sticks out here is that Mary Magdalene was among the many who were healed of evil spirits. She seemed to have been an extreme case, having had not one, but seven demons exercised. Today, she would likely be categorized and diagnosed as someone recovering from or living with severe mental illness. We can imagine how difficult it must have been for her, how throughout her life people would have whispered behind her back or outright called her crazy to her face. We might also imagine that in this new community of faith and among the women who follow Jesus, how she would have been respected and loved and how they would have marveled at her health after her healing. Other than this detail, we have no other background information about her. But on Easter morning, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb with some other women to properly bury Jesus. As they approached the burial site, they were concerned about how to move the large and heavy stone blocking the entrance to the tomb. But when they got there, to their shock, they discovered that the stone had already been moved. And Mary then, without even looking inside, jumped to the hasty, though understandably wrong conclusion that someone must have taken the body. It did not occur to her that the body might still be there or that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So she runs and tells Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved about what she has just seen. And they all run back to the tomb and Peter and the other disciple look inside the tomb and they confirm her suspicions that there is no body. They also notice, however, that Jesus's grave clothes are oddly still there. They were not stolen, including his burial face cloth neatly folded to the side. That is not a sign of robbery. No thief is going to do that. We are not told what Peter thought about all of this, but for the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that small detail is enough for him to believe. Then just as, they, as suddenly as they came, we are told that the disciples went away again to their own homes. Surprisingly, instead of sticking around with Mary and talking with her about what they've just seen and what it might mean, they just go home. But Mary stays. She stayed and she wept. She is overwhelmed by grief and now further traumatized that she will not be able to give Jesus the proper burial rites. Her grief is so great that when she does finally look inside the empty tomb and a couple of angels talk to her, she responds to them as if this were an ordinary conversation, that this was an everyday experience. It's quite shocking. Whenever angels appear in the Bible, 
their first words are almost always, do not be afraid, because people are usually terrified by the sight of angels. In this case, we might expect the angels to say, do not be afraid, followed by the proclamation, he is not here, he is risen. But instead, they simply ask her, why are you weeping? The angels recognize that she is so overcome with sorrow that even meeting angels did not faze her. C.S. Lewis, after the death of his wife, wrote in A Grief Observed, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning, I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says. I find it hard to take in what anyone says. I know that many of you understand what Lewis is talking about and what Mary must have been going through because you too have experienced the overwhelming disorientation of grief with the death of someone you love. For most of us, this past year has also been a season of loss, of sorrow and grief. And perhaps like Mary right now, it's especially hard for us to see Jesus or to have hope of the resurrection. Maybe like Mary, we are prone to mistake angels for human beings and Jesus for a gardener. We can easily miss hearing angelic messages and the presence of God's spirit because our emotions and our circumstances have gotten the best of us. Perhaps these days with everything on Zoom, it's harder to take in what anyone says. And yet Jesus persists and he asks Mary two questions. Why are you weeping and whom are you seeking? On one level, Jesus asks these questions because he sees her sorrow and he addresses her with pastoral care. But on another level, these questions get at something deeper. In the Gospel of John, over and over again, Jesus' words, his questions, have multiple layers that get at the deeper questions of what is being discussed. To Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again and to be born anew, which Nicodemus only understood literally, how can a man be born again? To the woman at the well, he offered living water. And the woman thought that he was talking about some magical waters and wondered, you don't even have a bucket to get the water from this well. His word to Mary gets at the core of her grief. Why are you weeping? Is it simply because you don't know where the body is and that you can't give the body a proper burial? Or is there some deeper grief? Jesus' question, whom are you seeking, for example, reminds us of the very first words that Jesus speaks back 
in John chapter one, when he said to the first disciples, what are you seeking? The gospel of John began with the disciples looking for the Messiah. And Jesus asks again to Mary, whom are you seeking? Is your grief beyond just for the body? Is it for the Messiah? Mary's response tells us that she is simply stuck. She cannot see beyond the need to bury the body. And we can't really blame her. She was not expecting to see Jesus alive. No one was. Others too, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, did not initially recognize Jesus because no one was thinking about that possibility of seeing him again. Dead is dead. But this is where grace once again intervenes. Jesus does not appear first to someone of great faith, nor to someone with all the answers, nor to someone with great courage, to someone who's got it all together. He comes and speaks and comforts someone in tears. She had no faith of, or hope in the resurrection. She came only to honor him, to bury him. Yet Jesus calls her first. And in the hearing of her name, her eyes are finally open and she is able to see Jesus. It's not that Mary had to try harder to overcome her grief. It's not that she had to increase her faith in that moment. She just had to respond to Jesus's initiation of grace in the calling of her name. And once she's able to hear and has the eyes to see and recognize Jesus, Jesus tells her, do not cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. When Jesus tells her, don't cling to me, he's not telling her, don't touch me. This is not like Moses and the burning bush where God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. Throughout his life, Jesus has redefined holiness. He's invited outcasts to be with him, to eat with him. He will also later invite Thomas to touch his wounds and he lets other women grasp his feet in worship. His entire life of incarnation was to be known in his physicality. So in telling Mary, do not cling to me, he's not saying that he's somehow become too holy to be touched. Rather, he's telling her to not cling so tightly to him. We can imagine that Mary might just be embracing Jesus with all her might. I think we all would. She's so happy to see him. But Jesus is telling her, I know you want to hang on to me and to be here with you forever, but I can't. I have to ascend to the Father and you have work to do. He gives her a mission to tell his disciples and to say to them this message, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. 
in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John had declared that to all who received him, who believed in the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now we hear it from Jesus. Jesus says, God is your father and your God. You are the children of God. When Jesus says, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God, he is telling us that we are the children of God and his siblings. But Jesus' phrasing also highlights and insists on Jesus' unique relationship to the Father. Notice that he doesn't simply say that God is our Father and that God is our God. We are all daughters and sons of God. We are family, yes. But by saying God is my Father and my God, Jesus also declares that he is God's Son in a distinctive way. Jesus had earlier called his disciples his friends, and now he calls them his brothers and sisters. His resurrection makes possible the creation of new relationships, not based on blood, but we become brothers and sisters because God is our Father. So Mary takes this message and becomes an apostle to the apostles. She takes the message that Jesus had given her and tells the disciples what Jesus said. I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Mary has been given a clear message and delivers that message. But notice that she prefaces Jesus's message with her own testimony. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. That's her testimony, and her testimony is rooted in grace. She was only able to see the Lord because Jesus took the initiative to call her by name. It was hearing by grace that led to her seeing. And that's where we are. Every Sunday in worship, I hope you can hear a word of grace. I hope you can hear Jesus calling you. I hope that every day as you read the scriptures, as you pray and meditate, as you walk about, as you work, as you study, and as you grieve, that you can hear him calling you. It's unlikely that many or any of you will see the risen Lord as Mary did, but you can hear and believe and be blessed. As Jesus will tell Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You and I also have a testimony. The good news isn't just some abstract piece of information. The grace of the gospel is something that you have experienced for yourself. Maybe you haven't seen the Lord, but you have come to know him uniquely in your own life. And you have had experiences of grace. And that's the story that you can tell. That's your testimony. Just 
like Mary did. And you know, the disciples did not believe her testimony. After she delivered the message, the disciples went into hiding behind locked doors out of fear. They thought that Jesus is dead, that his body had been stolen perhaps, and that the authorities would come after them next. That first Easter, just like today, everyone had a hard time believing in the resurrection. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. And I know that where you work, where you go to school, the people around you, you might sound like a nutcase for believing in something as supernatural as the resurrection. So let's acknowledge that it is hard to believe. But at the same time, I want you to know that you can have confidence in the resurrection, that it really happened, that Jesus is risen, that he is risen indeed. Let me close with this. In my family, there are certain things that gets said repeatedly. I suspect your families are the same. For example, whenever we get together with my mother-in-law and she gets to reminisce at all, she always mentions how it snowed and how cold it was the day we brought Lydia home from the hospital after her birth. These days, after church on Sundays, I will often drive to the local mall to grab some chicken sandwiches from Popeye's for lunch. I've become an Uber driver and my routine is to drop off a sandwich at my daughter's dorm room before coming home with the rest of the sandwiches for lunch for everyone else. I get no tips. Now, you might recall that there was a lot of hype about the Popeye's chicken sandwich when it first came out. And the first time my son Peter ate their chicken sandwich, he agreed and declared, this is the best chicken sandwich. Well, now every Sunday that he takes a bite out of the first of two chicken sandwiches, he will smile, look at us and say, I have to say it. And we tell him, no, no, you don't have to say it again. You don't have to say it, but he does. He has to say it every time he eats that sandwich. This is the best chicken sandwich. It's so remarkable that he has to keep on saying it. Incredible truths move us to repeat those truth claims. So I said this last week and I said it earlier in the sermon and I will say it again. Women were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and Mary Magdalene was the first to see the resurrected Jesus. This is just really, really incredible. For the gospel writers to all insist that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection makes no sense unless that's what really happened. When something unbelievable happens, 
and you want to convince people, you want to have as many reliable witnesses as possible, right? For example, suppose I were to tell you that I was inspired by watching the Masters golf tournament and went golfing yesterday. That's not hard to believe. But suppose I told you that I scored under par and I even had two hole-in-ones. Now, if you know anything about me or golf, you know that while that scenario is theoretically possible, it can't be true. And for those of you who don't know anything about golf, my shooting under par with two hole-in-ones is, is the statistical equivalent of something like winning the Mega Millions lottery and getting hit by lightning on the same day. It would be hard for you to believe my testimony and rightly so. But suppose I were to tell you that when it happened, I was golfing with three people from our church, three real golfers like Arnold and James, Dave Arnold, and that they will tell you, that they will testify, that they were there with me and they saw it happen. Now, a few of you might still think, oh, it's a lie or a conspiracy. But given the testimony of several others that you trust, as hard as it might be to believe, I hope you would be convinced by their collective testimony, even though you did not see it for yourself. That's the benefit of having good eyewitnesses. Now, just for the record, I did not golf yesterday. So we have the resurrection. Wouldn't you want to have the most reliable witnesses you could find? If you were going to make up this story, would you choose to have a group of women in the pre-dawn half-light darkness to make the claim as your primary witnesses? According to the Gospel of Luke, Mary Magdalene and the other women told the apostles about what happened. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. An idle tale, or as other translations have it, a fairy tale, nonsense, made up, didn't make sense. This is how women's testimonies were treated. Culturally, they were dismissed, and legally, they were unacceptable in a court of law. The contemporary historian Josephus, for example, tells us, from women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. Some early Christians made this claim, and critics of Christianity seized upon this. You say your first witnesses of the resurrection were women? You don't dispute that? You say the first person to see the resurrection was a woman who had seven demons cast out of her? <laughs> Seriously, that's your claim? If the church could have in any way shaped the story to put some men there first, 
they would have done it. If there was any way, if there was any manipulation of the truth going on, they would have excised the women from the story of Easter. That they didn't. Knowing that having women there first and having Mary Magdalene be the first was making their claim more precarious and less believable actually gives us greater confidence of its veracity. If anyone wanted to add details later in making up a legend, or if someone were to change the facts to bolster their argument, they would have done just the opposite of what the Gospels record. It is weakness that is made into strength. So let me say it again that the Gospels insist that Mary Magdalene was the first to see the resurrected Christ leads us to trust the testimony, not only of Mary Magdalene, but of the Gospels themselves. It gives us greater confidence that Jesus is risen. Mary was the first to witness and announce the good news of the resurrection. But the resurrection is not just an occasion to celebrate on Easter Sunday morning, to announce it that one day and to be forgotten about until next year. It's not a moment simply to savor. It's not just a moment to have a personal reunion with Jesus and to cling to him. It is not mere resuscitation and life going back to the way it was. The resurrection reminds us that life has completely changed. There is no going back to pre-resurrection normal. Jesus has ascended to the Father. He has given us his spirit and behold, he is making all things new. Here is the gospel which I have received and which you have received and by which you stand. Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and has been raised to eternal life in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures and the testimony of Mary confirm for us his resurrection. Believe the good news and be at peace. Please pray with me. I remind you that each dawn, each new day is a gift of his faithfulness. Upon the cross, Jesus bore every sin, every pain, every sorrow. They have been buried with him in his death and are gone. Whatever darkness you have in your life, Jesus can bring his light just as the sun shines in the morning. So his promises for us is sure. God is the great promise keeper. He is risen. God, we thank you for your promises and we thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. 
We thank you for the testimony of Mary and the others in the scriptures that give us confidence that this is what really happened. Help us to believe. Help us to hear your word and to trust that word. And in that confidence, help us to go as your apostles to share your word, to share this good news that Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray as he taught us, our Father, who Who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.